thinkers to think and thinkers to believe. During tonight, please feel free to give us a call at 888-895-KKLA. Again, it's uh, 888-995-5552. This is the fifth Saturday broadcast, the Church and State Report, where we'll discuss all the church topics we're not supposed to talk about in church. My name is Logan Superior. I'm here with Ben Wagner. Howdy. Say hi. Greetings. Uh, Because this is our first time, uh, I want to take a moment and introduce ourselves and say a few things about what we're up to. Uh, I'll start with myself. My name is Logan Sapiri. I have a bachelor's uh, in philosophy of science, a master's in philosophy. I'm working my master's in clinical psychology. Done a few things in media outlets, uh, worked for several Christian ministries, several academic fellowships, and now I'm currently working in a political think tank. Uh, Ben, why don't you... Yeah, my name is Ben. I'm a preacher. I wouldn't call myself a pastor because I don't exactly shepherd people, but I teach at my church on occasion and I teach at other churches. Additionally, I'm studying computer science and theology at Concordia University, Irvine. So I have a decent grasp on theology, though I wouldn't call myself a theologian. Additionally, I'm a debater. So I absolutely love hot topics. I've participated in debate since the eighth grade, and I now compete in college debate where Everything is Marxism, and there's not exactly a lot of common ground, but it's certainly an intellectual endeavor that I much enjoy. Uh, Thank you, Benji. Um, For tonight, I know uh, before we jumped on, you had some concerns, some content you wanted to talk about, about the purpose of the show, about how we're going to address these topics. Yeah, so this segment, we're going to call it, is the Church and State Report, and here... We're going to talk about the things that nobody wants to talk about. In general, there are three rules for conversation. Don't talk about sex, politics, or religion. We're going to talk about all three of those. (laughs) And that will be the main street for us each and every day. But we're going to talk about it in a more controversial way than you usually would, as a Christian way. We want to actively engage with these topics in the way that Christians would, not just as secularists, but as people who actively pursue the gospel in their each and every day life. We want to know how we as Christians are supposed to engage the culture, and that, frankly, hasn't been talked about very much. So we wanted to create a safe space for that and engage with it in a way that we want to, which is, frankly, spicy. Oh, no, for sure, for sure. And I think uh, we'll just introduce the first topic, and this is going to be the question, should pastors be fired for supporting abortion? And this is probably... A question that's been all all of our minds in the churches, especially uh, with the recent uh, SCOTUS ruling. Uh, there was a meme that was kind of floating around on the internet, I think, that really captured a lot of the Christian <laughs> frustrations. It was, uh, you know, th- that scene in Lord of the Rings where Aragorn is showing King Theoden the, the Calvary he brought in, and it was he says something to the effect, like, this is only half of what we hoped for. <laughs> and so when Roe versus Wade was overturned, it seemed like there was only half of what we hoped for of the pastors supporting this. There seemed to be a massive silence. They didn't mm-hmm. want to talk about this. And so to, I guess to begin this topic, I want to sort of give the devil his due, so to speak. And the question is, why do we think pastors were so quiet on this issue? Is it because the church is just so, so I guess, de- desperate to be culturally relevant that they dare not offend? Yeah. So in general, I think that we are supposed to be a part of the culture, but at the same time, we are in the world and not of it. We are meant to evangelize to the world. However, I feel as though 
a large portion of the American church is so concerned with being politically correct that they are willing to sacrifice on truth. And the reality is that that shouldn't be the case. We should stand on the truth, but we present it in love. A couple pastors that I look up to did actually speak out and support the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but the reality is that far more stayed silent on the issue. And we want to provide a space where we can talk specifically about the issue and lead potentially to cultural change on that. Yeah, and that that issue, I guess, tonight, the focus of our conversation is going to be for the pastors who are pro-choice, or maybe even towards the end of this evening, we'll talk about even the pastors that were silent. What do we say to those? Are they eligible to be fired? Should they face church discipline? Well, there's a conversation to be had about is a pastor silent on the issue? I would argue that a pastor shouldn't be silent, but I think we'll develop that more as the conversation goes on. But the people that we're really concerned about are the pastors that are pro-choice. Is that something that we can really allow in the American Protestant world? And it's really a painful topic to talk about, but it's very important that we do bring it up. So I think the first part we want to do is just bring out the biblical case for pro-life or to protect life at conception. So, in general, there are two verses that come to mind immediately, one from Psalm 51 and another one from Psalm 139. I'll read for Psalm 151, verse 5, and it says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, when we talk about sin, it's a state of disposition or a nature in the person. You don't call a rock or a tree sinful. (laughs) Those are inanimate objects. They are incapable of sin. But when we describe a person as sinful, it's because they're capable of acting in a sinful manner. So when the psalmist is saying, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, that implies that immediately after conception, we are sinful, thus implying some state of personhood because I have a nature and the nature is really what defines us as personhood. If we don't have that, then what exactly is a person? Is it a rock? Is it a tree? Some inanimate object? And then the other Bible verse comes from Psalm 139, verse 13. It says, For you formed me, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. There we see, you formed me in my mother's womb. I was alive and I was a person at that point in time. It's not at birth. It's not as though, let's say I'm born on December 10th and then December 9th, I have no value. It's in the womb that the person is already a human being. That's the biblical argument. There's a biblical basis for it, but we're not just concerned about that. I understand that there's also another part of the conversation where we want to talk about the philosophical argument. And because you have a master's yeah. degree in that, I think you would be much more helpful at well, educating uh, us on let's, that. Let's stick on the biblical argument just for a moment, because you pointed out a few thing, things in rapid succession that I think we need to focus on. That is, in Psalms 52.5, you said, essentially, there are three things that we can draw from that. The first is that there is a sinful nature. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that we get this idea that it's human, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't just get the sin part, you get the human part. Mm-hmm. And then the third part is the idea that it's from the moment of conception. Yeah. And the reason why it's at conception is because that is the formulation of a new human being. That is the point where it starts. When we talk about sperm or egg cells, those are not distinct human beings. Reason being is that they do not share or they exclusively share, sorry, the DNA of the parent in the same way that a skin or bone cell shares the exact same DNA as the parent. 
However, when the two unite, if you have ever studied the way that gametes interact with one another, that distinctly creates a new chain of DNA. There we would define that as the beginning of a hum new human life. If we don't do that, then we get into an ambiguous argument about, okay, what is life? Is it this or that? For me, it's when you have the new genetic information. And that's not to say that we should rely entirely on science, but I do believe there is a good scientific argument that a new human life is formed at that distinct moment. Here we're talking about primarily the psalm. It's saying, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That right there is saying, I was sinful. That defines personhood, that I have some nature. Again, we don't call a rock or a tree sinful. It doesn't have a nature. But yeah. humans do, and because I have one at conception, I'm a distinct human being. Yeah. That is what makes me new at conception. Yeah, and so you get those three parts, right? This yeah. that I just named. Now, but the Psalm 139.13, it seems like, though, you get the time dimension or what's going on. Mm -hmm. From the moment of conception, sort of the human person is developing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's not to say that you have all of the same organs that you do when you're going to be a full adult, though I know at around 10 weeks you have the formation of the organs, a heartbeat, and at least some of the basic functions of a brain, but I don't know that it's fully developed then. The question is not, is it fully developed? Because if your argument comes down to, is a human fully developed, then anybody who has, let's say, a missing limb, or not just that, but let's say somebody has a portion of their brain missing, that then defines humanity as somebody that is complete. And for me, I don't like to say that humanity is ever complete because everybody is always a deviation from the norm in some way, shape, or form. For example, even people who have epilepsy, they have the matter in between the hemispheres of their brain split, and that creates a distinct way of the neural pathways connecting, and that's different. Is that to say that they're not a person? No. In the same way, I have ADHD, and that's a deviation from the norm. It does not make me less human, however. It's the development that I would argue even proves that it's a human being because it's not just, oh, I'm immediately 100%. It's a constantly growing in the womb. You formed me there and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. There, life began. I was developing more and more in my personhood, but we don't define a personhood as saying, oh, you are either completely human or you're not human because no human is completely normal. <laughs> there are yeah. deviations from that. No, for sure. And, and I've liked how, with the biblical case, we get some of the sort of primordial arguments of the pro-life position. Mm -hmm. And you've referenced some of the philosophical arguments, which I want to turn to. But again, I want to remind the audience, if you have any questions, please give us a call at 888-995-KKLA or again, 888-995-552. So the philosophical arguments, they can be split a few different ways. Mm -hmm. The initial one, I mean, this is something that Peter Kreeft hits on, uh, where there's Three sources of arguments that kind of – or three pillars of the pro-life worldview. Mm -hmm. The first one is sort of the scientific argument. This is something that we uh, hit on with Psalm 52, uh, 5, which is that a distinct human life begins at conception. This should mm -hmm. be sort of the argument from embryology. The second th uh, kind of source would be the moral argument. This is the idea that human beings have a right to life. Mm -hmm. And then you get the legal argument, which is that human life is protected by the law. Yeah, please expand on those. <laughs> okay, yeah. So so for – as you would mentioned um, in the biblical case, you have the uh, 
the sperm and the eggs. These are, as you said, genetically identical to the respective parents. Mm -hmm. At the moment of conception, you do obtain a genetically distinct life. Mm -hmm. This is where you get these odd arguments where people on the internet will say, oh, if you were you know, a, a male who was masturbating, did they just kill a whole bunch of kids <laughs> or did the, did the, uh, a female, if they were, you know, uh, uh, kind of expelling an egg, are they killing a child? And you go, no, because these are not the, uh, the origination of a new life, a genetically distinct mm-hmm. human being. The moral argument, however, is an argument about the status and moral value of the individual that human beings have a right to life. This doesn't mean Mm -hmm. human rights in the sense of maybe a legal term you'd find in the UN uh, doctrine of human rights or something like that. This would be the moral argument that there's inherent life because ontologically speaking, human beings are fundamentally equal. And then you have the legal argument, which is the idea that the government Mm -hmm. as a representation of its citizenry has a vested or compelling interest to protect the life of its citizens. And so Mm -hmm. if you have a human life, then the government has a vested interest to protect that life if it is innocent from being wantonly killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we're talking about the moral argument, I understand that in human legal code, it doesn't really define life in clear terms. I think that there are several criteria, one of those being able to reproduce, that is able to sustain itself and things of that nature or to propitiate its own life. But The question then comes, I think, at what point do we distinguish life from non-life? And this is going from the scientific perspective as opposed to the biblical. When we talk about, let's say, a life, and I guess I would go back to the birthday analogy. Let's say somebody's born on December 8th. Did they have value on December 7th? Well, most people would agree, yeah. It's not just being inside or outside of the womb. You still have life then. And then going back another day, what about six? or December 5th or 4th, at what point do you start saying, wait, is this a human life or is it not? It's the idea of Zeno's paradox where if we have a pile of sand and we take away one grain, is it still a pile of sand? We do that again and we keep removing these individual grains of sand and then we get down to just one grain of sand. Is that still a pile of sand? It's an infinitely reducive concept. There's no clear line and consequently – It's very difficult from that perspective to say, oh, wait, this is when human life begins. But I think there's an argument to be said that when there's ambiguity, you ought to stay away from it. And would you like to expand on that? Yeah. So as you mentioned, this this sort of what they call the degreed property problem. It's a very – it seems like specialized language, but it's it's very, I guess, simply understood. And it goes something like – we'll put it this way. Most arguments today would accept those three sort of pillars of the pro-life view. They would accept that life begins at conception generally. Mm-hmm. They would say that that humans do have a right to life. Very rarely we hear someone say humans do not have a right to life. <laughs> they would also very rarely disagree with the idea that human life is protected by the law. What they would then say, though, is that from those three pillars, you don't arrive at the pro-life position. Now, how is that possible? Well, there's two ways. One is this degree property problem that you brought up. What mm-hmm. they'll say is there's something about the developing person that doesn't become a person until some later date. Now, what is the degree property problem? As you pointed out, it could be the sand. It could be like, we know one leaf is not a heap of leaves. And we know that a million leaves is a really big heap of leaves. But at what point does a leaf 
a collection of leaves become a heap of leaves. We would say two leaves aren't a heap. Three, you're getting closer. The same thing could be with being bald. We know you're bald if you have one hair on your head. If you had a million hairs on your head, you're no longer bald. At what point are you considered bald? At what point are you considered not bald? Where the pro-life position, those are going to make the case that at conception, you have a clear demarcation with genetic evidence that you have something entirely new. There is a clear way in which you say you have non-human, non, a non-human person, then a human person. Mm-hmm. But the second way in which they'll deny this is when, and this is the one that's very popular right now, this is kind of the super edgy stuff, but this is also sort of the archaic argument, which is that uh, a human person is, or a child rather, in the womb is sort of parasitic, or it's making um, unjustifiable demands upon the mother for life support. You might uh, hear someone say, you can't force a woman to come to term, right? So all these arguments tend to presuppose that the child is an unnatural byproduct, hmm. right? And it it the it it comes to something like saying, if I were to feed a child, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe even if I forced, maybe if I tied up the child, and I force fed him like his cereal or something, <laughs> that I was forcing him to develop as a human being. This is where we have sort of the crux of the argument where they think that if you allow something that would be otherwise natural, that's developing over the course of an expected pregnancy, that somehow you're forcing the woman to go through a natural process. And this is where I think a lot of the church and a lot of the social media get hung up on when they say that they think the child or the assumption is that the child is an unnatural byproduct of sex or an unnatural uh, demand upon the mother through the uh, umbilical cord. And how could you get this back to the degree idea that the Zeno's paradox, how does this tie in? Well, th- th- these are two separate ones. One of them is that they get they get past sort of the three pillars of the pro-life position. Mm hmm. By saying, okay, we'll accept those pillars. That is all fine and dandy. But there are two ways. The one they'll say is that, well, a, a kid isn't fully conscious. Or maybe a, a child doesn't have a fully developed uh, brain. Or maybe they uh, cannot live uh, without the support of their mother. So these are mm. all things that are degreed. That a, kid, that a child may become less and less um, requiring support from the mother or something like that. Mm-hmm. The other argument is to just deny the natural production of children. Now, they don't say that. What they'll say are things like you're making a woman, you're forcing a woman to go through a natural process, or a child is sort of leeching life from the mother. It's a, um, This goes back to Judith Jarvis Thompson's argument, mm-hmm. what they call the violinist argument, that there's some unnatural connection between the child and the mother, and the mother therefore has the right to withdraw that support from the child. Hmm. So they're two okay. separate arguments. Yeah. But with regards to the first one on Zeno's paradox, I understand that in hunting, I think you have to have some clear definition or idea of what you're shooting at in order for it to be legally okay. For example, if I see a deer, or let's say I don't see a deer, I just see some vague object in the distance. It's kind of a blur, and I shoot at it, and then I go up to it, and it turns out that's a human. That's a bad thing. You have to have a idea of what you're shooting at before you actually kill the thing in a very similar way. I feel as though there's some ground that you need to establish and you need to have clear definitions of, okay, this is when life begins and it doesn't. You have to prove that as opposed to people 
not proving. You have to have an idea of what the thing you're shooting at is as opposed yeah. to the moral ambiguity. You ought to err on the side of caution as opposed to pulling the trigger. Yeah, so this is an argument that you brought up. This is something that uh, Peter Kraft also popularized. This was sort of the um, question about uh, skepticism regarding the the nature of the child. And what he draws on is really there's, logically speaking, there's only four positions, right? And it's, and it's something like this. Either you know that's a human person or you don't know that's a human person and then you have the ontological that it is a human person or it is not a human person and he says from that you get four positions you know it is a human person and it is a human person Mm -hmm. you know it is not a human person it is not a human person you don't know that's a human person (laughs) it is a human person or you don't know it is a human person and it's not a human person and what he wants to say is the only situation in which abortion is justifiable is in the case that you know it's not a human person and it is, in fact, not a human person. And he says there's really the other three, namely, you know it's a human person and it is a human person and you kill that. That would be murder. <laughs> if you uh, know you don't know it's a human person, but it is, in fact, a human person, this is what he would call um, criminal negligence. Yeah, or something like involuntary where, manslaughter, where you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry, you're you correct. It would be involuntary it. manslaughter. Where you, it's like where you go to fumigate a building, but you don't know if there's any people in it. You go ahead and do it anyways, and you kill someone with, through fumigation. Mm-hmm. That would be involuntary manslaughter. Yeah. If you don't know that's a human person, and it is not a human person, this would be what Peter Crave would say would be criminal negligence. That is, you don't know no one's in the building, mm-hmm. and you fumigate it, and in fact... Surprise, surprise, no one's in there. So what Peter Crave tries to do is say, okay, the only situation in which abortion is justified mm-hmm. is in the situation where you know it's not a human being and is also, in fact, not a human being. Yeah, and from what we've heard so far, it seems as though there's good grounds to suppose that it is a human being because, A, there's distinct DNA, and B, there's biblical evidence to indicate that Life begins then. We have a sinful nature, and nature is largely what defines us as humans, and God formed us then. And then there also is the argument then, if you don't know that it's a human, we ought to stay away from ambiguity. Yeah, so really what this has come down to is three paths. Path one, the biblical evidence, which you quoted from the Psalms. Mm Mm-hmm. The second path would be more of the philosophical arguments in which you have the foundation, the pillars of the pro-life movement, plus a few conversations about degreed properties and questions about um, human nature. And then you have this third, which is more of a, a knowledge question, which is here's the only way in which you could justify abortion, namely mm-hmm. if you know that it's not a human person and is in fact not a human person. Yeah. And I think we've at least somewhat established that that position is unlikely because when many people choose to have an abortion, they are in moral ambiguity as to whether or whether or not this is actually a person. And furthermore, when we talk about the topic, it's oftentimes on the forefront of people's conscience that I think they shouldn't do it. But as you mentioned, three paths. And those are all, I think, valid to some degree. Yeah, and then what this is building up to, and this is what we'll begin talking about after the break, is what is the implications then for a pastor? A pastor is leading a church, a pastor who is then coming from the pulpit and either is pro-choice, 
He's saying that, you know what? The woman has a right to an abortion, mm-hmm. and we have to support that. What happens to those pastors? And then we have to have a question about what we what do we do for pastors who are silent on the issue, on something that would be of moral significance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a really big conversation regarding that. And going back to the Roe v. Wade issue, many pastors, I think, chose to be ambivalent about it, largely to protect their own reputation. And it is a danger that has largely pervaded the American church is that a lot of pastors are trying to grab for power or protect their reputation in terms of the culture as opposed to standing with the truth. And then the question comes, where is that interaction between the pastor and the culture? And I think it's very important. But again, you have to stand on moral convictions. And when you sacrifice the truth for the sake of love, that is a real problem that we (laughs) need to address in the church. I know for myself, I take a very vehement pro-life stance because I am a preacher. I believe that the Bible is the ultimate source of truth, and that's where I stand. A lot of people require more evidence than that. And do we believe that pastors should demand not just biblical arguments, but also moral, legal, etc.? And if they have moral and legal, should those supersede the idea that the Bible is the word of truth? For me, that comes back to Western culture, where we put reason and our individualism and our, our values as opposed to the word of God above everything else. But as you mentioned already, when we come to the problem of pastors and abortion, there's already a good case, both philosophically, morally, legally, that abortion is a bad idea. We need to know what we're shooting at before we shoot it. And we already seem to have some firm grounding in science. This is the formation of a distinct human being. It's already a life because it has new genetic information. And we don't see that in the original gametes. No. And this is where we come, as we come to our breaks, a thought to have is, well, then what does this mean for pastors who then don't speak about this? Yeah. Um, Again, we just covered the biblical arguments and some of the philosophical arguments for the pro-life position. If you have any questions or like to join the conversation, please feel free to call us at 888-995-995. Five 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 two. The mission of apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. Hi, ladies. Welcome to Open My Eyes. I'm Lori Wilburn. Whenever our grandkids come over, I like to plan a project. Recently, I planned for us to make fairy gardens. 
I gathered up the supplies, and when the grandkids arrived, they were so excited. They loved painting rocks and getting their little hands in the dirt. As the project went on, my grand ideas took a different turn. They had their own ideas about this project. Fairy gardens became layers of painted rocks and lots of dirt. The Lord graciously reminded me to just go with it and have fun. This whole project became a lesson for me about the will of God. How long do we walk with Jesus seeking his approval on our plan rather than his? All the while, the Lord is waiting for our surrender. We join our prayer groups, we stick scripture on our mirrors, and we stay stuck, claiming what we hope is the will of God. It was Elizabeth Elliot who said, The will of God is not something you add to your life. It is a course you choose. You either line up yourself with the Son of God, or you capitulate to the principle which governs the rest of the world. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Our willingness to allow the Lord to fulfill His will for our lives will put us on the pathway toward true purpose and a heart filled with God's peace. To learn more, visit my blog at Lori's blog at corechurchla.org. Hi ladies, welcome to Open My Eyes. I'm Lori Wilburn. In recent months, we have been tuning into the wisdom of science. It's also true that many of us are relying on worldly voices to help us manage our trouble. In John 7, 37 and 38, Jesus said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. When we face uncertainty and the vast questions that plague us, Jesus invites us to himself. We can read endless books and seek counsel from a host of individuals. But Jesus said, let him or her come to me and drink. Christian, whatever problems rage against our soul, God's Spirit is the ever-flowing, ever-living source that sustains us. We can flourish when the world is fainting. To learn more, visit my blog at corechurchla.org. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. Again, this is Logan Zipperi and Ben Wagner uh, with the Apologetics.com radio show, where we are challenging believers to think and thinkers to believe. Tonight's topic is the question, should pastors be fired for supporting abortion? During the first half of the segment, if you guys are just tuning in, we covered a few of the biblical arguments found in the Psalms. We've mm-hmm. covered a few of the philosophical arguments found throughout different literature, if it was Peter Kreeft or Klusendorf or um, maybe even Beckwith. And then um, we ended by saying that there should be some implications for what that may mean, given the biblical case. And yeah. we also offered... Go ahead. Yeah. So we're now talking about how do we actively engage this? If this is a position that the Bible clearly articulates... What does that mean for the church? What do we do about it? 
Well, I think the first... Well, before we begin to the next segment, it looks like we have um, a caller, if you'd like to bring him on. I believe it's Adam. Adam, can you hear us? Can you hear us, Adam? Uh, yes, I can. Hello? Yes. Hello. Welcome, Adam. How are you? I'm doing good. Just on a, you know, late night drive, flipping through the radio, and I said, these guys sound like they're talking about something. <laughs> I listened for Thank about you. 30 minutes, and man, it's, <laughs> these conversations uh, being had more often, you know what I'm saying, would, would get people to think. Mm-hmm. more because when you got to the the last part where you were talking about fumigating unintentionally and then and then how you relate that to all right if we're going to look at abortion the only way to justify it is if you know it's not a human and it emphatically is not that makes it really hard to to go any other place scientifically or otherwise Mm-hmm. But you have to confront it with, you know, say, as you said, it comes to responsibility. Who are we going to say is, you know, especially with the pastors, that that's a, that's where people are getting their ideas and thoughts. If it's not from secular news or whatever other situation people are looking up to, so even if it's being unspoken on, it's almost like you know these people have to go back out into the world and every other source is going to speak to them whatever programming and you're going to not speak on it yeah we definitely want to be engaging with these issues because it is an important topic if these are indeed human lives we need to be able to protect those and have a good conversation understand the ethical arguments the moral arguments philosophical biblical and we approach this as believers, that yeah. the Bible is the inspired word of God, and that's our ultimate source of authority. We don't believe it's the only way we can come to knowledge of the truth. We tend to believe that science reflects the knowledge that we are embracing in the Bible, and you very well articulated. If this is a human, and we are uncertain if it's a human, we shouldn't be taking the shot. The only circumstances yeah. when it's not a human, and we know it's not a human. Yeah, and Adam, I think you did bring a, yeah. a valid point that, you know, the churches as an institution of moral development for its a country's citizenry, for our town, um, churches should be able to talk about this. And they should be able to have serious conversations yeah. about what happens when certain moral arguments are no longer being uh, you know spoken truthfully from the pulpit. I just, I think, I, what I think happens is, I mean, you guys can let me know what you think of if this is a, you know, what do you guys think? But I think what's happening when someone, you know, whatever, uh, you know, decides to, you know, move a certain way or not move a certain way is you're searing your conscience. Yeah. As the yeah. scripture says. Yeah. Because you, you're willfully, you're aware, but you're not going to be aware enough to even allow yourself to check your own thoughts mm-hmm. or, you know what I'm saying, speak up in the community around you where you know that, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're yeah. Kind of no, people yeah. definitely need to have a clear conscience. And oftentimes our conscience is seared because of our wicked actions or people become so engaged with lies that they aren't really 
thinking critically about the issues at hand. Yeah. And we definitely want to do that here yeah, to set again, people's conscience free. Yeah, and again, thank you, Adam, because as you mentioned just at the end there, and I think that's the impact that our audience can come to realize is that there are consequences. When pastors don't talk about these things, there is a searing of the conscience that does take place when you come, you know, you have abortions and the, you know, the moral authority of the church is weakening and they're not willing to make these stands and pastor and disciple their own congregations. Mm-hmm. But now we want to move to sort of the implications. We want to have a conversation about, okay, we have a biblical case. We have a um, philosophical. Uh, philosophical case. But then we have the question of then why aren't pastors holding on to these truths from the pulpit? Why are they silent and why are they otherwise supporting sort of the pro-choice position. Yeah. So as a preacher, I can testify for somewhat of the community. And I know that there is a very deep strain in the Protestant church to try and engage the culture. So much so that I feel as though the church has somewhat become secular. It wants to almost be the culture. And the reality is that being friends with the world isn't the goal of the Christian. Where the culture differs from Christianity, the church needs to take serious moral stances and say, this is wrong. Now, there are some things that we can sacrifice. Well, I shouldn't say sacrifice, but where we don't need to have complete agreement in the Protestant church. For example, I know even me and my good friend Logan over here disagree about soteriology, and that's the study of salvation, or how do we come to be saved? I personally take the Lutheran stance. He's more on the free will spectrum, though I wouldn't say that I completely deny free will. (laughs) And similarly, there's a lot of stuff about eschatology where we disagree. And eschatology is the study of end times, particularly with relating to the book of Revelation, where some people take premillennial views, other people take postmillennial, some people are amillennialist. I don't know where Logan stands on that because we haven't (laughs) had that conversation, but I know that I personally am an amillennialist. It doesn't necessarily have to be the exact same opinion held by the entire Protestant church. I don't think that is entirely necessary. No, and there are questions, you know, I would always bring up just to sort of, you know, ruffle feathers, you know, as a sarcastic comment when we're trying to avoid controversial issues. I'm like, okay, why don't we have a debate on whether or not Adam had a belly button or something like that, right? <laughs> if you could somehow manage to get consensus on that topic, I don't know if it would be particularly relevant to the core doctrines of the Protestant faith. Yeah, the grand impact of that is zero. Nobody cares if he had a belly button or not. However, there are certain issues that the church shouldn't be compromising on. So, for example... The Protestant church has taken the position time and time again that we are saved by grace through faith. When you disagree with that, I think you have forgotten the Christian faith. These are things that we need to hold true in our doctrine. Similarly, I take the stance that you need to be a Trinitarian in order to— Yeah, it is a classical demarcation between orthodox and unorthodox, to say it very lightly— That the, the Trinity is, was one of those core concepts that you really cannot, yeah. cannot deny. The church history just reaffirms the Trinity over and over again. It was iterated in the Nicene Creed. It was iterated in basically every creed since then. And it wasn't until, I would say, about the 20th century, maybe the 18th century, where we had oneness Pentecostalism emerge and start saying, oh, there isn't the Trinity. Now, There are people, don't get me wrong, there was modalism way back in the day. I think that was around the second or third century where the idea that God appears in modes or different forms, but he is only one person. 
that's not the case that the church affirmed that. It was the exact opposite. The church mm-hmm. affirms that God is three persons in one being. He's three in one at the same time. It's difficult to articulate that with reason, but the church has said that. Yeah, so those are the distinctions when it comes to sort of theological doctrinal structure. There seems to be things that, yes, we can debate, we have conversations on. Mm-hmm. Then there are things which we can debate, have conversation on, but there is a clear position that the Christian church has held. Yeah. But when we move to questions about ethical behavior. Oh, yes. That is a different area. And the reason why I think the church needs to be particularly united in its ethical behavior is because that is the way that we evangelize. For example, John 13, 35, Jesus is saying, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And similarly, he says in Matthew, I can't remember exactly which chapter, but he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. When we radiate the aura of Christ, where people can basically smell the Jesus on us, that is the appeal of the gospel. Not a Biden joke, just (laughs) make a disclaimer there, but continue. We do not condone Joe Biden sniffing the gospel out of people or women or anyone. That's just... (laughs) Continue. Anyways, that is the way that the Christian church really ought to present itself, that we have clear ethical standards that we abide by. That's how we evangelize largely. But when we get away from that and start having major disagreements on ethics, particularly about abortion, that's dangerous. Yeah. So, so, you, so what you've illustrated here, to be clear, the Bible is very clear that our deeds should exemplify what we believe. And when mm-hmm. your deeds are immoral – yeah. There's there's a, there's a severe biblical consequence. This idea that this is should not take place. Mm-hmm. Most of the you know a lot of the New Testament with Paul is <laughs> telling the church, "Wow, you're not living the moral life." Yeah, and he brings that up time and time again. Paul writes to so many people, and the Bible verse that immediately pops out is Second Peter two two, where Peter is saying, "Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute." The idea being when you do not live a godly life, that really just throws the gospel out the window. I mean, if I see people in the church that are failing ethically, we know about Carl Lentz and his moral failings where he had an affair with a woman. And that just caused so much trauma in the church. It completely destroyed Hillsong from my understanding. It was painful. And we don't want that to be the case as Christians. We need to have good ethical standing so that we can be a light to the world. Yeah. Or even in cases like Mark Driscoll or something like that where yeah. there, there's the general command mm-hmm. constantly that your your actions, right, your moral conduct has to be a light, right? They talk yeah. about in Titus, right? Through, through, good, through good theology will kind of produce good works. And this is where um, James talks about this quite a few, this idea mm-hmm. – that a good tree will bear good fruit. Yeah. And you can tell by that fruit. But there's a point that I think that sometimes is overlooked. And sometimes we try to, like, um, pull pastors down from the pulpit and go, he, they're just like us. Yeah. Now, in a way, they are. They're human beings. They're made in the image of God. In that sense, we're all fundamentally equal. But it also seems like there's this competing claim that if you're a leader in the church, you are, in fact, held to a higher standard. Yeah. And because I want to become a pastor, I'm 
very aware of the pastoral epistles and the qualifications for a pastor. So for those of you who don't know, the pastoral epistles are First and Second Timothy, as well as Titus. And what jumps out to me is Titus 2, verses 7 through 8, where it says, In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And this is Paul writing to Titus, who is a pastor, and I can't remember if it's in Ephesus or some other place in Rome, but the idea being these pastors are supposed to be held to a higher standard. They're the people that are not just laypersons in the church, but they are really shining the light into the rest of the world. They're a beacon, and other people look to them for spiritual authority. And when these people proclaim a false gospel and have bad ethical conduct, it really damages the church's reputation. And I'm not to try and say, oh, we should cover up things in the church to protect its reputation. That's the exact opposite. No, no, no. This is where church discipline comes in. Yeah. But I think this even goes back to when Adam and called in this idea that we can't— the church is a, if they're in sort of the uh, genre, or so to speak, as a morally formative institution, they're bringing the gospel into the world so that people can be saved, that they can then like live according to the commands of mm-hmm. Christ. You have to be held this higher standard if you're the one doing the teaching to help <laughs> these. This, is, this yeah. shouldn't be a radical concept, but it has become a radical concept because when pastors fail, mm-hmm. very often they run and say, well, they're just like us. Well, yes, in a way, but in no, in a very different way. No, they're not like us in the sense that they should be, namely, in a, in a functional role, teaching how you should live so that you can reflect the light of Christ. Yeah. But here comes the question then. If the Bible is very clear on its sort of um, mm-hmm. conducts reflect moral integrity in a way, mm-hmm. that pastors should be held to a higher standard as sort of the the the, the way in which the moral discipleship is taking place. Mm-hmm. Does abortion fall within that question of moral conduct? Yeah. Is it a significant enough issue that we should say, hey, pastors, guess what? You can't compromise on this. And I think there is a really good case to say that it is a central issue and that pastors who do not agree with the pro-life position ought to be fired. And let's just briefly run through the case that abortion is a central issue. Now, we would say that murder is an essential issue in the church. If we had a pastor that was just loosey-goosey, no, you could commit murder if you feel like it. That's up to yeah. you. We, we would not be okay with that. Yes, we would, we would not have a problem saying, hey, pastor, I think you're in the wrong. Mm-hmm. Or at least we would hope. We would <laughs> hope that you would be able to say, hey, I think that's not a good position to hold. Yeah. And thieving. Hey, mm-hmm. it's okay if you steal from your local gas station if you want you know, an extra <laughs> coffee that you know, like I got yeah. away here or something. Yeah, and we've already established the case that there is a firm biblical, moral, and legal argument that abortion is wrong, especially with regards to biblical, we should be concerned. But it's not just that. If there was only one murder every year, we probably wouldn't say it's that significant an issue, but abortion is a real prevalent thing. So, for example, I believe it's the USA Facts reported that in the year 2019, there were 630,000 abortions in the U.S. alone. Data for 2020 and 2021 is a bit more difficult because COVID hit. But the point being, 630,000 murders a year 
is really not a minor issue. That's yeah. serious. And it, and it's to be clear that when you say if there was one per year not being significant, is there's a there's a difference between a moral significance, which we say morally significant, mm-hmm. and then a statistical significance, which is what would sort of motivate the we need to say this from a pulpit, right? Mm-hmm. This has become an issue, right? Paul could have talked about a lot of different issues, mm-hmm. but what he always focused on was the issue that was at hand at the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a very good point that you make there, that it's not just statistical, but it's also moral. And I think there's also another thing which undergirds that idea that pastors can take positions that aren't necessarily in biblical alignment. And that essentially says, I can have my own sentiments, my own values, take precedence over the Bible. And at the point where we say that the Bible is not the ultimate source of truth, I think that's where you even get into more dicey territory and you say, oh, the pastor doesn't even have to be preaching from the Bible. Whatever he feels he can teach, mm-hmm. do that. And that, again, is not great. Well, yeah, so we have – I think that, I think there's a clear argument to be made that if a pastor was pro-choice, mm-hmm. came out and said abortion is something that women should do, that men should support mm-hmm. – there would be reason to say that pastor needs to either be fired or face church discipline, mm-hmm. maybe removed from the church. Yeah. It becomes more gray, but I think we can also address it. Pastors who are silent on the issue. Now, you brought the statistic about 630,000 abortion, abortions happening in 2019. Yeah. We also have the situation with, with the Dobbs case, you know, most recently. Mm-hmm. When you're silent on an issue of moral significance— the question I think that we have to then ask is why are they silent on something that's mostly if there was rampant murder right in your town mm-hmm. and you didn't speak about it right to your congregation, maybe your congregation is directly impacted by it. Mm-hmm. We have to ask the question, does it become negligent or is it a form of trying to say, you know what? It's a culturally sensitive issue. So I'm not going to address that issue. Is this a form of negligence? I would say so. Because at that point, the pastor is not very concerned about standing on the truth. They're more concerned about appealing to the culture. And I remember Paul specifically writing, I can't remember if it's in Galatians or 1 Corinthians, where he says, why would I try and be friends with people? If I want to be a friend of the world, I wouldn't be with Christ. The reality is that when the Bible has clear delineations that it gives us, the pastor has to stand with the Bible and go against culture, even if the culture doesn't like it, because you're not going to be friends with the culture if you're a Christian. And I know that's the case for me frequently, but it's not to say that we shouldn't try and appeal to the culture, but where there are differences, you have to stand with the Bible. When there's significant moral differences, there should be a firm moral response. That's Mm -hmm. not to say you have to be vindictive and hateful, but there has Mm -hmm. to be a firm response. Now, Sort of as we're moving towards the closing of this tonight's topic, there are two questions that sort of emerge from this then. That is, what do we do with pastors that are, in the sense, being negligent or pro-choice? And to the other side, what do we do for pastors in churches that are being pro-life, that are trying to do diligence? What is their field? So let's start with the pro-choice, negligent pastors. Those pastors, I think, should be anathematized. It's the idea in Matthew 18 where Jesus is saying, hey, if a brother is sinning, confront him. If he doesn't repent, then treat him as you would a pagan or a foreigner. These people cannot 
be in the church where they're compromising the gospel, compromising truth, and sacrificing the Bible. However, we can't do that very easily because we're not Catholics and we don't have a giant church authority. So then the moral responsibility comes, who does this? Does the entire Protestant church get together and say, okay, we're going to get rid of all the pastors that are pro-choice? And I don't think that's very easy. Instead, I think it's important for each individual, either denomination or congregation, to say, this is wrong. And this pastor will not be allowed to teach in our church or our denomination again. That puts accountability on the people who hear this message and understand the position of the pastor. It's not like I'm responsible for everybody on the opposite side of planet than yeah. me because I don't know these people. Yeah, so this this is going to start sort of clear. It's going to start with your own church, mm-hmm. right? Whatever church you're attending, right? Asking the question, is my pastor pro-life? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then there's then what we're saying is there's a moral obligation, at least within a biblical foundation, mm-hmm. and we can even extend it into a philosophical argument that you should be able to respond to the pastor and say, hey, this is actually wrong. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you guys have an elder board or a, some form of accountability in which the pastor can be addressed. Yeah. But then the question comes, we're not just talking about the people that are pro-choice, but also the pastors that are pro-life. Yeah. And what do we do to support that community? Well, and this is, before we move, and this is mm-hmm. where it becomes, if your pastor, in part, where your pastor is pro-life, Right, so in a case like, say the Mark Driscoll incident where you had John MacArthur, whatever your views on John MacArthur is, when he was going after Mark Driscoll for what he was doing, there is room for, if your pastor's pro-life, being able to go and help another church in a way and saying, hey, this pastor is not fulfilling his oath, mm-hmm. right? He's not fulfilling his duty before Christ to be able to preach the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so then we want to move as we're kind of closing out. What do we do for the pro-life churches? Yeah, and I think it's very important that we aren't just pro-life or more accurately pro-birth, but also are supporting pro-life and after birth. Because one of the big things, and I've talked to other pastors about this, is their main criticism of the pro-life movement is we're just asking kids to be born and then we don't do anything about it. But the reality is a lot of people who do have abortions is because they don't want to bring a kid into a broken foster system or not provide a life that the child can really live to the fullest. We want to support a system where these kids who are born have a future before them. And there's a lot of broken things in the foster care system. And there's also not a lot of orphanages in the United States. A lot of those are being closed down, I understand, because of legal action partially against the church. Yeah. So, so then so then the, the moral, I guess, moral field for the church is, you know, because being sympathetic to a lot of the churches and hearing a lot of the pastors and even the congregation, mm-hmm. what can we do? And there's a few things. One is supporting the crisis centers. Another yeah. one is support, you know, trying to figure out how do you support adoption and going for that. This might be very controversial. And this is probably a topic we'll hit on in another episode is how do the, how does the church engage in reforming the foster care system through its legal and policy advocacy? Mm-hmm. Right? So there, there is a rich field that can be kind of plowed. Yeah, when it comes in, the churches need to again assert its moral reign and say, "Hey, we need to actually be morally forming our congregation and their children." Mm-hmm. And so, just to wrap it all up with a nice bow, when we talk about abortion, 
it has a firm biblical basis that we are supposed to protect that life. It is a life, and there is only one circumstance in which abortion would be moral, when we know it is not a life, and it is, in fact, not a life. The Bible, science, and philosophy in general reject that idea. When we come to pastors in particular, the question is, should we be firing them? And the reality is that pastors are held to a higher standard than the rest of the people in the congregation. They need to be held accountable for their beliefs, and consequently, when they do not affirm clear biblical teachings, they need to be anathematized by the church. Yes. Responsibility falls back to the individual congregations or the denomination, because I can't control people on the other side of the world. And the way we can fix the system or help out with this pro-life movement is by giving to foster care, potentially adopting, and anything of that sort. Again, thank you for joining us this evening for the Apologetics.com radio show and for the fifth Saturday segment, The Church and State Report. Have a good evening.